0: Eric Jacobson. Welcome to the Critical Teaching and Learning Forum podcast. The Critical Teaching and Learning Forum started out as a group of educators in New Jersey who came together once a month to have an open discussion about teaching from a left perspective in a variety of contexts, including middle school, high school, college, and adult education. The forum now has a website that features articles, resources, and news of upcoming events, and we encourage you to check it out. Today's guest on the podcast is Kevin Pyle, a comic artist and working teacher. He's the author of a number of books, including Bad for You, Take What You Can Carry, and Blind Spot. He has also helped create comics that focus on the issues of wage theft, migration, and the prison industrial complex. His nonfiction graphic work has also appeared in the LA Times. In the conversation, he discusses how he connects his political commitments to comic art and what that looks like in the classroom. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Kevin. Um, and I think I want to start at the beginning, which is when did you realize comics was a thing for you? Like, when were you sold on comics as a, as a form?
1: Um, well, you know, it's interesting because I, uh, I'm i not a kid. I didn't grow up reading tons of Marvel, comics, DC, all that kind of stuff, but um, I did, uh, in fourth grade, I was super obsessed with drawing, uh, I was a kid who always drew army stuff and military stuff. And, uh, I have this memory of the, the, the library, my elementary school had these, um, this book of Leonardo da Vinci's uh, drawings. And there was a big military section, which I love drawing. And so I did read a lot of Sergeant Rock when I was a kid. And like, I really liked Sergeant Rock and this barber that I went to had commandi for some reason. So I read those things, but like I didn't think about comics much actually after that um, for a long time, unless you count mad magazine, which was something I was really into. And my best friend uh, had his magazine that he made up called crummy and he would write it, and I would draw it. So I spent a lot of times drawing in the comic form, but I never thought of myself as a comics person, like really. And then when I went to um, when I went to college, I started out studying fine art, but the school I was at was uh, so much uh, abstraction. I mean, I went to school in the early '80s, and um, and the teachers were all sort of like maybe third tier abstract expressionism practitioners out in the University of Kansas where I was studying and I was like but I had become really into punk rock in the end of high school and so originally I was really into heavy metal and that was all my drawing so I was really a figurative kind of person and then um, I got really frustrated with that and then I started to hear about illustration it turns out the illustration department in Kansas was a really good one with a great teacher and through that I became I saw Raw magazine pretty early on Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. In, I think I saw Issue 2 in the museum at in in uh, Kansas City. And actually, while I was still in college, I saw World War III. So I started doing some comics, but I really moved to New York in um, – I moved to New York in 88 to be an illustrator, really, because I had trained as an illustrator. Uh, but i had been aware of comics for maybe four or five years and had done some comics. Um, but to be honest, it wasn't really until – It wasn't really until I started doing stuff for World War III in the early 90s that I got really entranced, like really seduced by the form. And really, uh, it really wasn't until I started working. I'd done two or three chapters for Lab USA, which was my first book. Probably in like by like 95, I started to think, you know, I'd like to do a book. And I always still sort of thought of myself as maybe someone who would show in galleries, but also was doing a lot of illustration like I was at that time, because I worked a lot for like the people like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the New Yorker in the um, in the early 90s. And um, but then when I kind of got focused on doing this book, I uh, got so into the form. And then when that. um and with the World War III stuff, I still, it took me a long time before I thought of myself as primarily a comic artist. And I don't even know if I still do, to be honest. Okay. For, for folks
0: that aren't, um, you know, really conversant in, in comics history or the, the oh, yeah. present situation of comics, can you explain the sort of radical evolution of going from Sergeant Rock, being a Sergeant Rock fan, to working <laughs> on World War III Illustrated
1: and kind of give a capsule introduction to what World War III Illustrated is? Sure. Yeah. World War Three Illustrated uh, is a, uh, a radical left comic book. Um, I would say over the years, it's stayed really stable in a lot of ways in the sense that it kind of connects politics and personal experiences. It came out of the Lower East Side, the squatter movement. Uh, but it also has, has a long history because Peter Cooper, as a lot of people will know him as a, as a comic artist. It's um, one of the co-founders. And he, like myself, was more connected to maybe the New York uh, newspaper magazine publishing world. So it always sort of had like this mix of like maybe a, a squatter who had this experience and wanted to do a comic about it with someone who like published things in The Times regularly. You know, <laughs> so, it's, so it's a real mix of radical of people who want to do comics about about politics Um but, yeah, so it's extremely different than Sergeant Rock. I yeah. mean, uh, what's kind of interesting though about thinking about Sergeant Rock is that my first comic for um, for young adults was called Blind Spot, And it was really about the experience of when I was reading Sergeant Rock and playing Army in the Woods, and like in fourth grade, just like having total autonomy in the woods, but also coming to realize at the same time when I first became um, experienced the picture pictures of the Holocaust and stuff. So, so um, so it was like an awakening to the idea of that the comics weren't really for me in the sense it was all about people fighting and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, to answer your question, yeah, um, Sergeant Rock is a very mainstream kind of, I can't remember if it's DC or Marvel, but it tells stories company, yeah. Yeah, of Easy Company. Um, uh, a Jersey guy. Um, Cooper. Joe Cooper, Cooper. Yeah, started the Cooper School. He... Uh, he was the uh, the Sergeant Rock guy, but basically, it's like yeah, it's like kind of like a like a like a like the Dirty Dozen done as a comic, you know? It's like a World War II comic, um, and commandi which was another one I read a lot of, is a post apocalyptic world. It's a, a late Kirby sort of thing um, where uh, animals uh, can all talk. It's kind of a Planet of the Apes type of thing compared to World War Three Illustrated, which is really kind of like an activist tool. And like the first stuff I started doing for them, well, this is quite a second iteration in my first book, Lab USA, was basically kind of like, uh, I called it a docu-comic because it was uh, a lot of it's based on declassified documents and it's drawn. um, I would often take uh, photos, I could see, you know, research photos and I would kind of Put them together with other other photos and kind of draw them myself. Um, but it basically, it's about the history of um, clandestine medical research that the government did and defense research into behavior modification. So it's basically like X Files and the Human Rights Document, like put together in a comic form. So so drastically different than what people consider comics in some ways. In fact, the guy at Fantagraphics, one of the guys, like, is this really even a comic? You know, like, he, like it was really pushing the form. And to be honest, a lot of my early comics, what most excited me, and this goes back to Raw Magazine, um, is, uh, and for people don't know, Raw Magazine was started by uh, Art Spiegelman, who did Mouse. Uh, Raw Magazine was kind of like breaking the real, showing the comics could really break out of the superhero tradition. And that's the first comics I got really excited about. Same with World War III Illustrated. So in some ways, my relationship to comics has always been the most com- – the comics that excite me the most are the ones that really push the form, break it apart, or comment on it in some way. So for me, that's um, – yeah, World War III and Sergeant Rock probably couldn't be more different. More apart. And, and it sounds like, you know, that the your sort
0: of latent interest in the form was reawakened by the political aspects of it. All right. So so rather than kind of going from comics and then, you know, infusing them with your political sensibilities, it sounds like it was the, a little bit of the opposite direction where your political sensibilities were sort of, you know, coming, you know, they're evolving, they're maturing at that, at oh, that yeah. stage of your life. And then as an outgrowth of that, comics uh, seem to be a valuable or a valid kind of avenue of expression.
1: Oh, that's totally accurate because I was doing a lot of op-ed illustrations. I was doing stuff for The Voice and The Times and people like that. And, uh, and I worked a lot for this group called, the, uh, for a paper called the, um, the National Law Journal, which was like a weekly uh, newspaper like the Wall Street Journal or something, mm-hmm. but for lawyers. And I'd read all these complex articles about uh, the death. I was always getting death penalty and jail stuff, and uh, and so um, nice beat to have, yeah. Yeah, I had this kind of I had the dark beat because that's yeah. always been what my work looked like. And yeah, I'd have to boil all this really complex stuff down into a single image. And when I started to read about this history that's in Lab USA, um, I got really fascinated. And, and really, comics was the only form that I could tell it in. Right. I mean, I needed I needed that space. But I also got really interested in how you could use really repertorial language, or I could use... the. Um, a lot of times with the storytelling, I would just use excerpts from these government documents, like in scientific language, and then this really cold language, and contrast it with these really hot imagery, you know, really, like, kind of disturbing or unsettling imagery. And that whole... Uh, dialectic between the, the word and the picture just became so fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And that's really, I mean, that's what's the real art of comics. It's so much fun to like see how your words contrast your pictures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I think that's
0: been one of the more exciting developments in comics over the last couple of decades is the sort of explosion in nonfiction comics, right? Like the mm-hmm. work of Joe Sacco and others where, as you said, like kind of a journalistic perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, way way beyond capes and hoods and you know superheroes punching each other into buildings like it's really exciting seeing different ways of doing nonfiction. Uh, whether it's you know some of some of the work that you did which is somewhat impressionistic in the in the lab usa book and sort of mm-hmm. vignettes versus something that's just like straight up reporting like sacco's work in in palestine
1: um oh yeah, yeah. so how do you oh, yeah, i saw sacco pretty early on as well I mean, when I first moved to New York, there was a store called See Here Records, where uh, which was kind of like the alternative comic place, mm-hmm. and they had the original floppies of Palestine. And I was like, "Oh, what's this?" And so I was reading Sacco back when he did Palestine, and like, it was kind of, kind of bought everything that he did in that following career, and and so, um, so it was, and and I feel like in some ways. Uh, Lab USA was a struggle to take like a sako sensibility and mix it with a raw magazine sensibility in the sense that I really liked both these things, but you know, how do you make it your own? You know, right. with Raw being more sort of,
0: you know, avant-garde or expressionistic and yeah.
1: work being a little bit more neo-realist in orientation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Definitely more realistic storytelling, straightforward narrative storytelling versus, um, seeing how far you could, uh, you know, can disconnect the words from the pictures before losing the reader. You know, like how how far can you push it? You know,
0: yeah. For for people listening that have not checked out Joe Sacco's work, I highly recommend any anything oh, yeah. by him and everything by him. Um, he also did a really interesting book with Chris Hedges a few years ago, where Hedges wrote sort of prose chapters about kind of contemporary uh, situations in the U.S. And, and Sacco wrote, his chapters were the sort of graphic reportage that he does in yeah. Native American reservations, Appalachia, where people were pushing back and, and fighting back against the system. So, so how do you see comics as teaching tools politically, particularly when it comes to sort of political
1: issues? Well, you know, it's interesting because um, I do, yeah, now I work uh, at a school in Newark three days a week, As sort of a traditional art teacher but also with lots and lots of comics but for maybe eight years I was as a result of doing book events and I had four books that were for younger kids so I would start to do these book events where um, where kids would come and stuff and I started to do drawing workshops and all of that and I started to get and I think this went back to the, this goes back to this idea of pushing the form. I got really excited. I like I'd never read Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics or How to Do a Comics, but when I started to think, oh, what should I teach kids? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I started to read that, and I realized, uh, in some ways, I got very. Uh, I came to teaching comics because I got really excited about. Um, the just the educational possibilities of it basically it just seemed to me like such a perfect form to, to, to reach kids. Um, but back to your question, the political aspect of it's kind of um, uh, it really, for me, it really depends on the different contexts, you know, like the school I work at now I can completely, you know, we spent a whole semester on March and got, uh, which is the, the, the book about John Lewis's life. And uh, while they were doing a civil rights um, research unit, this is like seventh and eighth graders. And then um, and then they could, and then I did a project where then they would each research their own civil rights person and then do their own comic about it. And so a case like that, there's a lot of uh, political dimensions to it. Um, but as a, for what I did for years as a workshop artist, um, I, uh, sometimes it was just me going in and teaching kids what the word balloons are, what the facial emotions Mm -hmm. are, whatever. Um, And this is, I guess in some ways, kind of a far field from politics, but in another way, it's not in the sense that kids are super empowered by understanding that they could draw comics, you know? And uh, um, and I think it's a little bit of a political stance to be bringing alternative ways of teaching into schools, you know? Mm -hmm and and providing creative space in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really surprised how meaningful the experience of teaching comics and teaching was or is for me. Um, but I have done some pretty political projects with it. In fact, the very first one I did was with a group in Brooklyn called the Center for Urban Pedagogy. And what they are is they're a school that does these artist res, or they're a program that does these artist residencies where they bring artists in to use design as a way to do research and then to present information. And so um, I went into a school in um, Spanish Harlem where, um, and this was an outgrowth of a comic I did called Prison Town, which is about... I mean, this is something we haven't talked about yet is that I've I do a lot of um, I also have this kind of thing where I do activist political comics, like for activist groups. And I'd done one about prisons. So when I talked to the Center for Urban Pedagogy, I'd say, well, I'd really like to deal with criminal justice issues, you know. Mm-hmm. And so they were like open to this. So I went to the school and had all these students. um Basically, basically, I taught them how to do comics the first couple of weeks, and then it was all about researching the impact of criminal justice on their lives. And they were so when I gave them this Prison Town comic, they were so excited that someone was doing comics about mm-hmm. about the impacts of prisons on their community and stuff. And so they were researching, and you know, um, researching police brutality, uh, interviewing incarcerated family members, um, just basically wherever their imagination took them in relationship to uh, criminal justice. And then they ended up producing a comic on it. And it was such a rewarding experience. And I was, I, I enjoyed it so much, but I, I did, I have to admit, I thought that was going to be my niche. It's <laughs> like, Oh, I'm going to be the comic artist who goes into school dealing with social justice all the time. Right. But, but what it turns out, what excites people more is the comic artist who comes in, who can, um, can support all the touchstones of the Common Core curriculum in ELA <laughs> through yeah. comics, well, which actually grown is up. great too. And I don't mind at all, but it's it's an interesting thing. That's yeah. what the grown-ups want. That's what the grown-ups <laughs> want. That's yeah. what the grown-ups want. I mean, you know,
0: uh, I'm, I'm program director for something called Write on Sports, where we work with middle school kids uh, to teach them how to be sports writers, a way to increase their confidence and interest in writing. Yeah. And what our students consistently tell us is how freeing it feels to be able to choose their own topics, right? That like oh, yes. we don't we don't tell them what to write about, you know. And so they tell us, well in school, all the time teachers are saying, read this book and write an essay or read this poem and write an essay. Or, you know, and we're basically like write what you want to write about. And and you know, we get some students that write about you know, LeBron James or boxing or whatever they're interested in. But we also have students that write consistently about racism and sexism, you mm-hmm. know, and social justice issues. Uh, because we give them that space um some of them they're a little shy the first couple days they're like you what i get to write whatever i want to write we're like yeah "Yeah, Yeah. you get to write whatever you want to write and other ones are like off and running right away right but they're so unused to having their agency recognized when it comes to what they want to communicate right not only how they're going to communicate it but what the topic is that they they want to talk about
1: Yeah. And I guess that's that does feel kind of empowering and political in the sense that um, because I because I have done some artist residencies with middle schoolers where I'll just teach them about memoir comics and I'll show them Persepolis and I'll show them um, uh, American born Chinese and I'll show them I'll show them uh, a couple of my books as well. And this whole idea of like, well, what's the story you would tell about your own life? and then teach them how to do comics. And then they may, maybe have them do a four or 10 page, however many pages they want about their life. And they they just, they're, some of them don't want to talk about their lives, but a lot of them are just like, wow, this is like something <laughs> something I can write about. Like something I know, this is actually something I know, you know. You had
0: mentioned you do some comics for organizations. And I was wondering if you could talk about um, Migrante, which uh, you worked on um, yeah. about folks down at the, the border. Um, just especially in terms of what the process is like, right? So uh, I think one of the ways that uh, comics, like other things, are teaching tools is how we model our praxis, right? So we we put our values on the page. We put our values uh, into the production. We put our values into the distribution. Right? That's the whole DIY uh, network uh, approach. So can you talk a little bit about the process of making Migrante and, and how that might model your both your political praxis, but also your artistic praxis and your educational
1: praxis. Well, I guess I'll give you a background on what the comic is first. First, the, co- the comic was done um, in partnership with um, some Catholic groups that work in Nogales and um, uh, Juarez and El Paso. And um, they both, um, they mostly, they they have a commodore in uh, Nogales to feed um migrants they have halfway houses to help them and they basically advocate for them and this comic was actually uh researched was it yeah it was it was researched sort of at the time it was researched before Obama or before Trump was elected but when Obama was um let's see I'd have to go back and look at it I think it um it came out. It came out right when Trump was starting, so it doesn't. It doesn't include Trump, but it talks about all the policies that already that preexisted him. Mm-hmm. But in any case, um, an important aspect to highlight about that process and the other activist comics I've done is that almost every time you see a character with a word balloon speaking, mm-hmm. um, uh, a migrant or an activist or whatever, it's most likely an actually direct quote. And um, this is something that. Um, I guess, gets to my praxis in the sense that early on, I started, be, I was a little uncomfortable with the idea, well, I'm, I'm this like um, relatively privileged, privileged, straight white guy doing comics about, I did one about wage. It, it happened when I did this comic about wage theft and people in, we went and interviewed all these workers in Houston who'd have their, all their wages stolen and everything. And I realized that I didn't want to create fictional characters, uh, nor did I want to speak in the voice of these characters. I felt much more comfortable in drawing as drawing portraits of them and drawing um, and using their words mm-hmm. because uh, because I really want the comics to be a voice of the people who who are the migrants or the victims of wage theft or um, victims of uh, there's another I did another one about health and safety issues in slaughterhouses in Arkansas and so um, so the reason that's so important to me is that, uh, is is when we is when when wage theft came out uh we got all this feedback from the people who we'd interviewed how how important it was for them to see themselves in these stories and how even though they told their family members about their wages being stolen and things like this when they gave this comic to their family members and they saw them they say it was just so such a powerful experience and even the the real experience of 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 just being interviewed and just letting, and just being able to talk for hours about the things that happened to them was just a really kind of important experience for them. So it's kind of like a template that was set up uh, with that first Wage theft comic Mm -hmm. that I followed through all these activist comics because, um, and I would have to credit my uh, co-writer, Jeffrey uh, Odell Corrigan on that, because I think, I think he, he as the co-writer really, You wanted to make sure that we were telling really accurate stories and we weren't just well, we both agreed we didn't want to just read a bunch of articles and then write stories about these things. We wanted to, you know, and you can there's the, I mean, and that's and that's kind of really important also from the standpoint that there's just there's so much information out there now. And like, so how do you make your what your contribution is to this information to be authentic and important? And so for me, having it be the voices of the people who are experiencing it, having that front and center is what makes it a really important project.
0: Yeah. In some ways, it reminds me of the work of um, Svetlana Alexievich. I don't know if you know her. She won the Nobel Prize for Literature a couple of years ago. She's a Belarusian author. And her expertise is going in doing um, long and lots of uh, interviews, like doing lots and lots of field work with interviewing mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then taking their words and shaping those into nonfiction accounts. So she, uh, she has one about Chernobyl. She has one about the collapse of the Soviet Union. And the one no, that really brought nice. her to attention is called Zinky Boys. And it's about um, the, the Soviet experience in Afghanistan. Um, mm-hmm. And there's almost no uh, editorial or authorial comments. It's almost all the voices of the people uh, that she spoke to. And so to be able to do that, she had to go there. Right yeah. She had to go to Chernobyl and spend months there. She had to go you know, to various parts of the Soviet Union to talk to veterans um and and I think, as you were saying, uh, there is a lot of information out there, but it's not necessarily data, right? There's lots and lots of like oh, stuff yeah. flying around, but you know it's not turned into data until we do something with it, right and so to get out of our armchairs, or I don't know, people, people don't really sit around in armchairs anymore, I guess. So that's like a criticism from the 50s. Get out of our Ikea couches and then, yeah. and then go someplace out in the world. Um, and I think that's the kind of thing that is really important to model for students, right? In terms of recognizing their agency, whether they're gonna turn it into a comic book or whether they're gonna turn it into, you know, a collection of uh, nonfiction pros like Alexievich, but like that there's multiple ways to communicate but it takes legwork, right? And it takes yeah. time and it takes a commitment to doing the analysis and not
1: just repeating what you've heard kind of other places. Right, right. And, um, and, and also that idea of actually going to the places is extremely important for my own practice also because – you know, once you've done work for a period of time, you start to realize that you have your own themes that you're really interested in. Mm -hmm. And for me, uh, uh, kind of a theme as an artist has always been, um, or I've come to recognize is the importance of um, being aware of how an individual's environment affects them and like landscape and how landscape reflects an emotional experience. And just like and just like when you're trying to find your way into a creative project for some reason it's always been helpful for me to uh, with the exception of Lab USA but everything since then like like landscape has been really important to me mm-hmm. i think it's cuz like blind spot was about playing army in the woods and like my second book catman i set it in the neighborhood i was living in it was about a kid feeding stray cats mm-hmm. and uh, take what you can carry half of it was set in a um, Japanese internment camp, and the other half was in the neighborhood I grew up in. And so it's always been really important for me to connect to the landscape that the story exists in. And so for wage theft, um, for the, the Arkansas um, uh, meat processing plants, and for migrant, I you know went to those places. And that uh, just um, situating those voices in those environments just really sort of... Help me, um, but you know the author. I didn't recognize the author you mentioned, but uh, I have Voices of Chernobyl, and it's such a powerful book because, because, and 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 again, it's and it, that does also kind of go back to Lab USA. It's like the the real words of the people who experienced it or the perpetrators of it is for me more powerful than whatever lyrical language I could put on it. I mean, and and I also I have to say when it deals to with subjects about politics or social justice, I also feel a little reticent to be using these things to uh to sort of show my writing chops or my you know isn't this like right, right, right. oh look at that sentence isn't that so you know because because a lot of these projects um they really are about uh clear communication and trying to build empathy and power but you know that said there's some authors like Rebecca Solnit or some other people who can really pull it off you know they can really write about politics in a way that's lyrical and beautiful but um that doesn't feel narcissistic, you know,
0: there's a great, um, there's a great bit. uh, I think it's in uh, the possessed or demons, uh, a great Dostoevsky novel where Mm -hmm. he really eviscerates um, Turgenev. He, he creates like a Turgenev stand-in who's describing a boat sinking um, and there's like women and children and people drowning on the boat, but this mock Turgenev's reportage is all about how it's making him feel. Like, <laughs> look at me, I'm crying about these women and children dying and look at my face, look at how affected I am. And it's just like oh, a really, fun. really, yeah. I, I cold, cold takedown of that sort of like, you know, yeah. Narcissistic reportage of, of, uh, folks who are honestly struggling. Right.
1: And, and yeah. 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 And it's, um, it is something you have to guard against, you know, and I, um, I, there's a, there's an author I've read a fair amount, uh, this guy Teju Cole, um, who, uh, wrote open city and, and, my interest in his writing is completely unrelated to this but I bought a book of his essays and then one of them is the the called the white savior complex and I read that like while I was doing this I'm like oh shit <laughs> really <laughs> I hadn't even thought of that you know like yeah. oh no you know yeah. and uh, though I didn't realize that I actually realized it when I was doing the book Take What You Can Carry cuz since one of the stories is set in a Japanese internment camp I decided to tell that story as a wordless comic because I realized I was really uncomfortable with like writing in that voice, right? Like, you know, it was hard. And, but I also felt, uh, but I didn't give up on it cause it was challenging. I really gave up on it because I realized the reason it was hard is because I, I felt I was being presumptuous. Like I, right. I just didn't re- I really couldn't say that I was comfortable putting myself in a different, in a, the childhood voice of someone of a different race and being like, not making mistakes, <laughs> you know. So, um, so I think that's something people really have to guard against. You know, when I started teaching, the school I teach in Newark is all is all um, Newark residents, so it's all black. And uh, uh, my son was in the Center for Social Justice at the school uh, at his high school. And when I started teaching there, I was I. He said I mentioned this white savior complex thing. I was worried about, and he said to me Um, because they were talking about these issues quite a bit at that time. And he's like, well, what you really have to guard against is just the idea that you're not there for your own emotional satisfaction. You know, it's okay to be emotionally satisfied by it and it's okay for me to draw meaning out of it, but that can't be the primary reason I'm there. You know, that's not what you're getting paid for. (laughs) No, no. And and they're not getting
0: paid to, to be your therapists. Right. So. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, I think, um, I think in some ways, um, what you're talking about also demonstrates that there's multiple ways to get into both comics, right? So um, you can either start with the ideas and then the images, or you can start with the images and kind of go the other way. Um, Teju Cole's work does this really interesting stuff about combining photography and prose, right? So he, no. you know, he kind of mixes those, those medias in, in a really interesting way. But I think as you were saying, like, as we're doing all this kind of work, uh, bell hooks would suggest that epistemological humility is like essential right that like we have to be cognizant and recognize like what we don't know right there's stuff that, yeah. there's stuff that we don't know and she's got this great bit about like you know white folks uh having to feel like they're the, going to be the master of any conversation that they're in right and that yeah. like no no and no. sometimes that conversation is not going to include you and that's okay that that conversation is not going to include you because you don't need to be included in everything yeah 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 um, so um, one of the things that, the other thing I guess this conversation makes me think about, I think it's Neil Gaiman possibly kind of bemoans the fact that with graphic novels kind of becoming a thing that people teach now in the classroom and like Marvel comic movies and that sort of stuff, that, that in some ways comic books as a form have been slightly domesticated, um, you know, and it was kind of nice when they were a little bit like as part of the counterculture or part of the resistance and um, beyond world war three, do you think that comics still have that potential for like teaching
1: against the grain or going against the grain? Um, I think there's stuff out there that is, that, that does that. I mean, you know, um, oftentimes it's just, the way comics has always functioned, which is just like to go against people's taste. I mean, Uh people like, I think, what's his name? Johnny Ryan, like Prison Pit and stuff like that. Just like super gory comics that cross the line in every possible way you can imagine, you know? Um, I think they all live exist in alternative culture. Uh, It's really hard to say. I would say that in the education milieu, comics still have that, that, uh, that air of, um, time away from school or zone, the for zone of this forbidden still, yeah. still, you can still leverage that idea in a classroom. I mean, it's still, you walk into a classroom now and say, we're going to do comics. I'm going to teach you about how to do stuff with comics. Kids feel they're in a different space. They still feel like they're in a different space and they've been pulled out of the education space. And now they're in a, in a, in a, you know, Uh, yeah, especially given their, their deep love of anime and everything. They're just like, they're like now finally something I I care about, you know? Um, So I think they still have that power to sort of, um, I guess that's a subversive power in the sense that it, it attracts them. um, And it's the, it's the lead in to get them to, uh, to sort of, I mean, I think one of the biggest struggles in education is, is um, getting kids to get past the idea that if it's being taught to me in school, it's only about school. It's only about grades. It's only about school. It's like, because of course, most of the things you teach in school have a real intrinsic value to them. Right. <laughs> I mean, they feel, you know, anyone who, um, you know, reads as much as you and I do and like just spend all a lot, so much of our time in intellectual pursuits. It's like, it's like all this stuff has so much value. It's so interesting. But when you put it in the context of school, there's, there's, there's some really high achievers who it's like, okay, I'm only processing this because I want to get that a, and there are other ones who are just like, if they're telling me this, then it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're just trying to make me do something. And so comics still have that power to break through that mentality. Yeah.
0: My, my, I hear so often in so many different contexts where, you know, high school kids would be like, oh, I used to I used to love to read. And people say, well, what happened? And They'll say school.
1: You know, yeah. And that's just that's like just super depressing. That's kind of how it was with my son. I mean, my son loved to he was just consuming huge amounts of books. And maybe around eighth grade, he kind of stopped. But I also think it was kind of like when they get their phone. You know, when they when they have more unfettered access to video games, all this kind of stuff. I mean, he's come back to it as, you know, now he's reading things that I can't read, you know. Right. Right. Um, I always feel like that's
0: the that's young kids jobs. Right. Young kids jobs is to make music that I don't understand.
1: Yeah. To make
0: comics that I don't understand and to make movies that I can't understand. Right. Like I feel like I feel like if they're making music that I'm like, "Ah, I get this, then they're falling down on the job.
1: Right, uh-huh. kind of are, yeah. They're yeah, like, you job- move forward. You got to move the ball forward. Yeah, You're just throwing yeah. it back and forth on the sidelines. You got to right. get in there and like, yeah. yeah. We don't need six wave emo, right? We no. We, we need something different than six
0: wave emo. But yeah. you know, you know. But this is a question that comes up to me, like um, as someone who uh engaged in a fair amount of graffiti related activity when i was uh, younger yeah. um you know i know schools have tried to like uh build on kids interest in graffiti to do like the official graffiti wall in school which is like completely counterproductive right like who's yeah. going to participate there's no such thing as official graffiti right that just doesn't it yeah. yeah. doesn't make any sense um and if my school had been like hey you know Here's the wall. Stop doing it other places, and I just be like, "This is dumb, right?" Yeah. And so, and so I worry that I worry a little bit about that with comics because I because I do I do think it is valuable to have them create these openings and create this the this space, this space of agency and possibility and thinking about the form. And I worry a little bit that like I love American Born Chinese. I love Fun Home.
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, um, I worry a little bit that there'll be like a curriculum attached to it or a lesson plan attached to it, kind of like a, here's the set way that we've decided to talk about these really vibrant texts in the same way that we've kind of destroyed Animal Farm or 1984, or, yeah. you know, by coming by coming up with these set ways of talking about it, right, rather than there being opportunities to really think through the art form, think through the political ramifications, you know, I would hate for a kid to read Persepolis, and then take like an eight question multiple choice test at the end of it.
1: Yeah. yeah. That would be the worst. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and that also extends to the form of teaching comics technically because, you know, you know, when you're an educator, you do have to make certain decisions. You know, it's really hard to sit down in a room full of kids and say, okay, let's just all do all everything differently. <laughs> let's see, you do that, you do that, you do that, and I'll just react to every single one of your outputs in a unique moment and – pull whatever comes out of my brain to help you in that thing which you know you have some classes like that i do studio classes like that and it's tiring and hard but but you do still have to start with some base of knowledge right. but it, but i worry yeah it's like oh, okay so i'm teaching all these kids the word balloons and they love to know them but now they think that's the only way you do word balloons right you know right. um or and kind of related to this is the really interesting experience when I was doing workshops in all these different schools is sometimes the comic that I was most excited about that someone did after five teaching five classes a day was the one that like completely ignored the rules that I taught and the kid just did exactly what they wanted to do. And they decided, well, I'm just going to have, you know, I don't know, this rock Talk to like because you also teach things like the three the three act narrative arc. You're right. teaching about oh let's introduce a character. Now we know what the, what does the character want. How are we going to get to this point? Right. And you know the teachers love that and and it actually does really help to tell a story that way. It helps a lot of kids because they're like I don't know what to do a story about. And then when you start to lay it out in sequential steps they actually feel empowered by it because they suddenly feel like, oh, I've got the secret to telling a story. Right. But then there's always another kid who's like, ah, oh, I know about that. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> like watching action movies since they were like two years old and they they totally know about how, how it's all put together. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's actually, I think, just a conundrum of teaching in general. I mean, right. I think it's true for every subject. It's like the more you teach it, you know, probably the, uh, probably the only, I mean, I wonder if jazz teachers have that problem. Like, like you, there's an art form that's actually based completely on improvisation. Do they still have that, that conflict of like, oh, I'm teaching something. I'm like calcifying it to the point that everybody thinks it's got to be done this way. Right. You know? I don't know. I mean, Marsalis is a jazz guy and it's
0: about improv, but he does it in a very sort of, He's got a sense of what's jazz and what's not jazz, right so even yeah, and it's and it's really annoying that he does not think Cecil Taylor's jazz <laughs> right so I think I think some students do benefit from these structures, like whether it's a five paragraph essay like but not everything in the world is a five paragraph essay right but we need yeah. some people need outlines you know you need to outline, you need to organize um, and some of these rules are helpful, but they're like heuristics they shouldn't be kind of set in, in stone, right? And you're always going to have a kid that's like, I'm Picasso, right? Yeah. Like I get yeah. the rules and I'm transcending them, right? Or I'm Joyce. I understand narrative rules, but I'm yeah. transcending them, right? And, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think part of the problem is within sort of neoliberal models of school, we have to grade them Right, they have to get a letter grade or they have to get a number grade, and then we think of them as moving from one year to another, Mm -hmm. which is really sort of circumscribing what learning is, what exploration is, what investigation is. Right, so if you have a class of 30 kids, whether it's in you know comic book class or an English class, you know, and yeah, they could go in 30 different directions, um, given that freedom, but with the demands of accountability it makes it yep. very difficult for a teacher to kind of really let kids set their own boundaries and and transcend those boundaries
1: you know yeah and, and in terms of accountability some of those picasso kids the reason they like not doing all the stuff that you're trying to teach them is because it's so much easier for them to you know have oh my character is two dots and they and they 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 don't speak in word balloons they just have the words up here in the corner and oh you don't have to be able to read them they don't have to be legible because he talks in a garbled way like like it's true that innovation sometimes is actually or not following the form is is a way of really just being kind of lazy or like not (laughs) like like not having to do the work you know Um, and it's really hard to read the difference with some kids i mean I mean, uh, some of these kids that now I've been at this school for three years, I've definitely started to recognize and I've seen some kids grow up from fifth grade to eighth grade. I've started to see some of those models play out, you know, like, like, and, and a lot of times the really imaginative kids, they also kind of on some level understand what we're talking about. Like, if you're if I follow all these rules, it's not gonna be fun for me, right? you know and it's going to destroy it. <laughs> I mean I think that that is
0: always like the question about like art and creativity, right? So it's like, oh, I took a I took a tea bag. I was making some tea and I took the tea bag out, you know, and I put it on my notebook and didn't pay attention to an hour later I come back. It's a Rothko. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like or or is it actually a Rothko and it's like a really, you know, uh, thought out and mindful mindful process. So, um so I tend to close these things by asking folks kind of what they've read recently that's knocked their socks off. So is there anything that you've, it doesn't have to be a comic book, uh, something that you've read recently that's really
1: changed your way of thinking about something? Well, um, I'd say this book knocked my socks off in sections of it. In other sections, it tried my patience, which is usually (laughs) a good good, um, good mix. Yeah, a good mix. It's called The Book of Unconformities, Speculations on Lost Time by this guy Hugh Raffles, who I'd read this book by him called Insectopedia, which is basically like kind of like man's relationships to insects written in like two or three page almost separate thing you know, almost separate. It might one might be a story, one might be a scientific experiment, one might be, and this is kind of structured in the same way where it's like, um. The title, the book of unconformities, uh, uh, relates to uh, this geological term where, like an unconformity, like you're used to the geological strata all kind of lining up. Mm-hmm. You know, like you've got one layer, then the next layer, the next layer. Sometimes they're unconformities, which means like a layer from another time has been shoved up into the <laughs> into mm-hmm. the in, from the past up into another layer, and it's usually because of, you know some traumatic thing or whatever. So anyway, the whole book is a combination of travel log where he's traveling around the world. Uh, actually mostly in where's he, he, starts in New York, goes to, uh, the Hebrides and Orkney goes to Iceland, Greenland, uh, a couple of islands way up north by the Arctic circle that I hadn't heard of before. But basically each chapter is around a different mineral. And then okay. it's a mix of a travel log and then a history of the place. And then, um, uh, it usually a lot of it's very deep history. may might go all the way back in geological time, like how this rock was formed. But inevitably, a lot of the stories end up uh, connecting to when uh, the indigenous people there encountered Europeans because it was often for a mineral or it might be some geological event. Like I didn't know that there's an island off the coast of Iceland that was created by a volcano, like in 1963, things like this. So he'll find some historical thing that he might really focus on, but it's also a travel log. So he might be talking to people, getting the stories, the like the third generation story mm-hmm. of when the whalers came and stuff like that. So it's really, it's one of these books, it's actually kind of like Teju Cole or one of my favorite writers is W.G. Sebald. And um, it's like these historical things that's, that where you see the uh, reverberations of deep time into the current moment, mm-hmm. and all the thing that happens in between, you know. So, uh, so yeah, he builds each chapter around rocks. So, like, there's a whole part about Neolithic stones in the Hebrides, and, mm-hmm. and there's a part about. Um, uh, what was his name, Robert Perry, like brought this meteorite back from, this iron meteorite back from Greenland. And it was the, it was this big hunk of iron that the local people used to get all their arrowheads and everything. And he just like took it and brought it back <laughs> like, along with some indigenous people. And they yeah. put them in a museum. You know, the meteorites in the museum, the indigenous people are in the museum. They all die, you know. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it's wrapped up also in uh, mortality and, mm-hmm. you know, People die over time. So, <laughs> well, and it
0: sounds like it goes back to what you were saying earlier about location, right? That oh, that very a much a so. way to ground your work and your thinking is thinking about location. So, so it sounds like it's it's consistent with that longstanding interest. So, yeah. all right. Well, thanks for your time today, Kevin, uh, and good luck with your future projects. Uh, and we'll look forward to World War Three and other things coming out. All right. Well, nice to talk to you. I want to thank Kevin again for sharing his time and insights with me today. I encourage you to check out his work at KevinCPyle.com and look out for new issues of World War III Illustrated. Stay safe. I want to thank Kevin again for sharing his time and